Hello, and welcome to Business Without Bullshit, where we take a sideways look at modern business, talking to founders and entrepreneurs and crazy people about the problems they face and how they solve them. I'm Andy Ori, and alongside me is my sister, my co-host, Juliette Ori. Woohoo! Hi, Andy. We, we are joined today by Gideon, uh, who has a range of professional interests, ranging from media, advertising, data, startups, climate uh, change, health and technology, and has held senior and advisory roles across various sectors. He was amongst the team that created HMRC. He was at the center of a giant media storm of the Gambling Act with emails debated at Prime Minister Question Times. He was co-author of the Stern Review of Economics, which rings a massive bell, but I fucking can't remember what it's about. No, climate change, that's what it's about. He's an uh, incredible human to boot. And he's also an angel investor, but don't tell anyone. We're in very good company indeed. Gideon, welcome to the podcast. Hello. Uh, so Gideon, tell us first, what are you up to at the moment? What am I up to at the moment? Well, I had a long board pack arrive this morning from the charity where I'm a trustee, which is RNID. So that will be probably what I read tonight, help me get to sleep or tomorrow morning. But I'm in the process of launching a, um, a company that brings together media and data. That is, I think, something that will either be really quite game-changing and um, really change the way that brands can reach clients, or um, it will be a spectacular entrepreneurial failure, and then we will move on to the next thing. Okay, amazing. Well, let's, um, what's your first, what, what, okay, we got through school. What becomes your first Yeah, yeah, open job? the beer. Let's open the beer, have a beer. Go, go. So I think after university, I did a brief foray into student politics, which was extremely educational, but I think everybody would struggle to say that was a proper job. Yeah. But partly because of that, I ended up without realising I was applying to the civil service, applying for the civil service. <laughs> How and, does that work? And I ended up um, at the Inland Revenue as an economist in 1997. No way. Did you study economics? Was that what you studied at university? Well, my degree certificate says I did philosophy and economics. Okay. I had to ask somebody where the library was halfway through my third year. <laughs> and I think that summarises all university experiences there. Unless you went to where my sister went, Buckingham, where they whip you for two years. So, so I have to say, I'm always amused when people say, what did you study? Because the answer in reality was, I became really good at political campaigning. And I became really good at working out how to get people to turn up to events. You know, I ran the debating society and I was always happy to help, you know, other student activities and, and so forth. Okay. Um, I also became, you know, good enough at blagging to get a reasonably good degree um, because effectively arts degrees in the old days, you know, you could string out a few pages of, of carefully considered for you would get reasonably good grades. I have to ask because um, I vaguely remember discussing this with you. So when you when you say that you were amongst the team that created HMRC, and if that doesn't strike fear into your heart, then you must be foreign and not know that is Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs, the tax man. That used to be two organisations, didn't it? The Inland Revenue who were responsible, I can't remember which way around it was. Customs and excise. Customs and excise. The people who collected the money and the, peop and the people who did the tax returns. Is that right? And, and they merged them. And my old man would say, or a lot of people would say, that was sad because the culture of HMRC now is 
collect as much as I can and everyone's rewarded on how much they can collect rather than do a good job to get tax returns right and someone else do the collecting, which if you think about it is a subtle difference. I don't know if you you you, you follow no, me I mean, that's a really what? interesting perspective because um, it was very funny how I ended up on this team because I got back from business school and one of the things it was, I was sitting around at the treasury wanting out what job they were going to post me to. And I had a chat with somebody saying, oh, you must know something about mergers because you've been at business school. And you know something about tax because you used to work at um, Inland Revenue. So we're doing this project. I think you can help us. And if this was two corporate organisations you would not assemble a team to do a merger of two organisations that had hundreds of thousands of people with six people. Um, one, of, one of which was from a tax department to make sure the team could tick that box. You know, it was absolutely incredible. Six people were responsible for merging it. What was the idea of merging it? It was just sort of cost-saving or something, was it? Or what was the principle? Well, it wasn't actually that difficult a question. Because I think, you know, tax is one of those things that, you know, pretty much every country has a tax department. And we did this wonderful little slide when we were thinking about doing it. And it was, you know, countries with a single tax department, you know, 168, you know, countries with three tax departments, about five, and they were all African countries. And Including country, us. <laughs> country with, with, with two tax departments, the UK, Israel, and Malawi, and Israel's in the process of changing. So, you know, there aren't that many officials, that, um, any, any you know, ambitious um, politicians that think, I really want to be in a peer group with Malawi. Yeah. Um, so it wasn't that difficult. Big up Malawi, though, you're a wonderful place. It wasn't that difficult a question to realise. And one of the fantastic things, because as you alluded to, these organisations did have very different cultures, is... They weren't necessarily bought into the idea that it was a good idea to have one organisation. Um, and some bits of it were just fabulous. That was the reason. The reason was nobody else has two tax departments. That was basically why they did it. must have been cost-saving or something, wasn't it? Or Well, the point is, I think there were lots of sensible... It wasn't the only thing that happened at that time, because tax policy also used to be done in these departments rather than the Treasury. Which, which was interesting. We'll come back to that. Mm. But, but one of the things was, for example, there were two debt collection functions. So if you were somebody that hadn't paid your income tax and hadn't paid your VAT, two separate people would try and collect the debt. And obviously, you can be fairly sure there was quite a high degree of overlap in yeah, people yeah. that had a debt to one or the other. Um, but because this is, this is government, you know, there was this fabulous business case written jointly by, by both the organisations on all the different reasons they, did, they, they didn't think they could merge. Um, they're really, really interesting. But um, I think at the end of the day, um, one of the purposes was to better try and align with customers because customers didn't have two people to do their VAT and their indirect tax and their direct tax. So it wasn't that difficult to imagine in the future that you might be able to have some people that talk to SMEs and other people that talk to big businesses and therefore have one joined up conversation with all the data available to them and about taxation. So I think it was a good idea. I think one of the things that is interesting that's happened in parallel is obviously in the early 2000, most government departments had offices 
and people in them. And if you had a problem, you could go visit the office or call up. And obviously, you don't see DWP in most high streets now or HMRC. And therefore, all the trends you're seeing in business have also happened to government too. No shit. You used to go down the office, did you? HMRC had offices around the place, did it? I think if you go back 20, 25 years ago... I think I remember my dad saying that, actually, and you'd go down the street and knock on the bloody door and say, I want to see someone. God, that would be so much better than ringing that phone line from Somebody hell. could come down with a big file, yeah. look at your file, whether yeah. you've done your month six or month seven, pay as you earn returns in the, the correct way. That's crazy. What a crazy We've way to start lost a career. communication on that. Yeah, yeah, we do. I mean, are you you wonder exactly how was it less efficient before? Because every you know, they, they, now we all have to deal with a call center, and then they make the call center harder and harder to get through, and they make make you spend ages waiting, and and you just think, um, you know, it's so much better as a consumer. Is it better as a whole? You know, am I going through this pain for you to save money, but it's good that you're saving money, or? The thing is, I think you know, the tax system is awfully complicated. Very complicated. And, and I think one of the pages. things obviously keeps keeps you in good business. But one of the things is is you know you do wonder does it really need to be this complicated? Oh my god! No, it doesn't. What has been your biggest fuck up then? Your biggest um, career misstep? That sounds like an interesting career. Where did you go to go from after that? I wouldn't say misstep, but I think I did have quite an adventure when, as a young person, I was put in charge of a historic change to the gambling legislation. And what was the change? Well, effectively, 2005 Gambling Act is quite unusual because, effectively, it took every bit of gambling legislation on the statute book and ripped it up and started again with something that was intended to be good for the modern age. And was that a good idea or bad? I mean, we're unusual. I only learned this yesterday that most places gambling is illegal around the world. Britain loves it. We've got one of the, some of the most lenient gambling laws in the world, apparently. We're mad for it. Even though 70% of people think that gambling's dangerous and shouldn't be done and like all the statistics are that it's bad and shouldn't be promoted, but we're super liberal. What, what, was, what was the big change in 2005? Well, I, I, I personally don't think it's bad. I think that... You know, all public legislation should be driven by risk and, and addressing what the problems actually are for, for an area. And one of the things that the gambling legislation did was it said, well, why are we regulating this at all? It's to protect people from unfair games. Yeah. You know, we need to make sure the games don't cheat. And, okay, problem gambling, this is a real problem. Yeah. So actually, why don't we actually measure it? Why yeah, don't what we percentage of people are design addicted? regulations around, therefore, addressing it? And, and up to that point, you know, no one had ever really done that. But you weren't popular in doing that, no? One of the things that, that, that was interesting about this, and, and there were some really interesting lessons learned, is that you know, this was just after the Iraq war. And, you know, there was plenty going on in the world. And one day I walked into work when the Daily Mail decided that this was the biggest crisis facing the nation. So it published 28 pages of, of issues to do with the Gambling Act. Absolutely. No way, the Daily Mail did. Extraordinary. So, of course, you oh would never God, give... the bloody Daily Mail. 
It's, it's always the Daily Mail because the trouble with the Daily Mail is it's, it gets the largest reaction. In all the years we sold skincare, we once had three sentences in the Daily Mail saying, El McPherson thinks that this is his favorite product. Our phone rang off the hook. We couldn't, we couldn't, the whole week we were just selling this product. And, and you put that in any other newspaper or magazine, nothing much happens. Something about the Daily Mail audience is very reactive. Well, the point is, is I think it's a brilliant business. I think they really know what sells newspapers. Yeah. I think one of the things that they've done that is, you know, fantastic to admire from a business point of view is the online proposition is quite different to the newspaper. You know, yeah. in terms of the, the content of, of it, in terms of, um, you know, the topics it, it goes into. But, you know, as I say, the Daily Mail got very excited about the gambling act. Mm. What did they write? They wrote 27 criticisms. Yeah, because they feared, you know, what happened when there would be super casinos in every high street. Um, yes. You so. know, all, all sorts of, of things that would be unleashed. And my poor team, who used to answer letters very slowly that people would write in, one day came into a post bag that was like, you know, six bags of letters. And the 21-year-old who worked for me was like, do I have to answer these all individually? And I'm like, I'll, I'll be like... We send them all back postcards, you know. <laughs> um, so, so effectively, um, it absolutely erupted as something that up to that point wasn't regarded as particularly controversial. It had been proceeded on a cross-party basis and suddenly became a really hot policy I remember topic. this is when they said, because uh, the super casino was going to be built in Blackpool. I wish they would, no, sorry, Blackpool listeners, but, you know, I wish they would flatten Blackpool and build a Vegas. Do you know what I mean? It, they were going to have Vegas in the UK. Yeah. And if Richard Branson or someone was going to do it, or, you know, it was some, if some... If you travelled to these places around the world, you know, some of them are quite nice. Yeah, they've got, good they've fun. They've got you know, good entertainment options. And obviously the whole business model of these is that you're attracted by the fabulous restaurants, you're yeah. fabulous by the, the fantastic shows or the boxing match or the concert. Yeah, I'm not interested in the gambling, actually. Yeah, and, and but maybe, maybe you'd hand over some money to those nice gaming machines downstairs while yeah. you're, you're killing time. So obviously, you know, the UK was fairly interested in opening for business and getting the investment into some areas from this. And that was one of the pressures that led to the Gambling Act. Um, so it was interesting, but equally, I then, um, you know, one of the things that got interesting was that effectively the papers then decided that I was quite an interesting person to write about. And it's quite unusual for a civil servant when the papers start to write about you. Yeah, a very unusual. It doesn't happen, basically. Well, normally there's no reason to write about civil servants because normally the people making the decisions are ministers. So how did they get hold of you? Well, effectively, I think there were a few things. One is essentially one of the reasons I had been given the responsibility of helping get legislation happen is I actually understood quite a lot about horse racing and gambling and what needed to be done. Gideon, were you an addict at the time? I wouldn't say I was an addict. Right. But, but I did understand how to use a betting exchange. And I did understand how to do online betting, um, neither of which were technically legal in the UK, which was one of the reasons we needed to create the law to allow them. They weren't to... legal at the time. Interesting. Not strictly speaking. Not strictly speaking. It was all a bit, there's too much going on like there is now, you know. 
Um, and one of the pressures that actually led to legislation is 1967 legislation said a gaming machine is where the game is contained within the machine. And what then happened was that people had computer terminals that were betting on a random number generator in Milton Keynes on the internet and looked just like blackjack. Right. And suddenly you had blackjack in the high street all over the high street because these machines were really lucrative. So it's one of the pressures for legislation. Wait, wait, so the, the, the machines were lucrative because someone was gambling on them from a distance? Well, effectively, 1967 had no conception of the internet. Yeah. So the legislation had not been designed. So you, need, you need a machine to be able to gamble and then you, can, you allow someone to connect to it from the internet, do you? Well, that was the problem, the legislation. But that's what people were doing. I never knew that. All these places on the high street full of gambling machines that no one's using, people were connecting to them by internet and mm -hmm. running the game on that. And that, in theory, is just like oh, betting on a horse shit. race or watching on television. But of course, by betting on a machine that made ones and zeros, you could create a front end that looked just like blackjack. Yeah, wow. And suddenly you had casinos popping up in what used to be, you know, vacant shops. Yeah. Just with these machines in. So had they done nothing, every high street would have been estate agents and small casinos. Yeah, wow. That just shows, I mean, that shows how much legislation needs to be updated. So they got hold of your name and what? And, and you were... You Found were, him in the betting shop. You Found you in the betting shop. No, so I think it was very unusual that effectively um, media companies, A, decided I was an interesting person, and B, um, that effectively perhaps there was a story there. And what that led to was A, um, you know, having emails that I'd written in the normal course of work being debated in Parliament as to what I really meant, and, and B, you know, quite interesting experiences with understanding what the press do. My God. That's seriously unpleasant, no? You, you were young at the time. I was quite young at the time, and this was quite a surprising thing to happen. So first of all, you fuck up the Inland Revenue, then you fuck up the Gambling Act. Okay, that's a good start. What, what do you think is most uncomfortable about business? I think one of the things I find most uncomfortable is that effectively we all want to work with people that we, we respect and are honest and trustworthy and we do deals with. But the reality of business is that not all your suppliers or your customers or your partners are always like that. And you can adopt a holier than foul attitude that I will only work with people that you know, I've had dinner with, I know the whole family, I trust them and so forth. But you won't do very much business like that. And I think one of the things I find most uncomfortable is, you know, sometimes you're seeing warning signs or things that you do not normally associate with straightforward business. But on the other hand, you can't proceed and do any business if you always just say no. It's quite wise words because I like to be on my high horse and, and only like to deal with straight people and I'm bored of not straight. But you're right. With some, you've got to ride the wave. Maybe you don't. I mean, I think, you know, I, I have, we have jobs where we have to meet hundreds of people all the time and kind of make choices about who we work with. And it's very curious what affects that choice. Things that you wouldn't normally say affect that choice. Your ego has in a play and not necessarily like they're a big client, 
maybe they know how to neg you a little bit or they know how to make you feel like, and I'm giving a rarer example, but sometimes I, I think to myself, there's no, I, I don't try, there's something about this person I don't like. Why am I wasting my time? But you carry you you still carry well, there are on. Different, there are different levels of of, of dodgy behaviour or, or questionable behaviour. Yeah. People want to change the deal at the last minute. Yeah. Is, is sometimes there's a reason, but sometimes you wonder. I bet they plan to do that all along. It's very very common in deals that the the guy's emma always at the end is to do that, and it's fair what you're saying. But a, a huge proportion have made that decision at the start and they just wait until they get to the nth hour and everyone's exhausted and yeah, then change. You know, you you get to the point where, you know, you've made a few concessions, you're trying to come to a deal and then the other side comes up with some more things as if they've just banked everything you've already said and now they expect you to offer something more because they've, they've found some new reasons. What's the hardest thing you do? What do you not like about your job? What's the hardest thing you have to deal with? Well, I think, you know, I wouldn't say I would not like. I think there, there, there are a few things, really. I think what's difficult is always sales and fundraising. I think that's challenging. I do not think for it's really easy. And you always need a mixture of selling a dream, that your product does this and it's fabulous and it's going to be fun. That's generally what other humans want to hear. But equally, your product really should do most of what you're saying it does. Yeah. Your business should have the potential that you're selling an investor to believe in. And as I say, I think that's difficult. It's good finding people who are genuinely good at it. And I would always recommend for both of those things, find pros that do this day in, day out. Yeah, because they will produce for selling or fundraising. For selling or fundraising. Yeah, I think they're they're very similar skills. Yeah, I think they're different audiences who need different language and, and different mentality. But at the end of the day, both need to find the right people to convert the right people and to close deals. But there's very few pros who do fundraising. In reality, there's very few corporate finances out there because it's it's so difficult. You know, uh, it's it's can be a pretty thankless task. I mean, that's my experience. Do you agree? No, I agree. I think at the end of the day, people with money in their pocket have often got money in their pocket because they've been careful and picky about who they trust with it. And one of the things that I think is really important people understand is a deal is not done until it's done. I've seen so many deals that the business behaves as if it's done. Yeah. And then they get to the last point and the investor just doesn't proceed. Yeah. And and one thing I would say is is it's always good to have a plan B. Yeah. It's always good to work out when something doesn't fall through because that's really, really common. Hundred percent. I mean, I've just watched someone do that. It's you know, you get this whole thing about who's gonna lead of the venture capitalists, and you can you can get everyone basically saying they're in, but no one wants to lead, and then you can't get anyone to lead, and they all just sort of fall away. I mean it's yeah, it's very frustrating raising money. I think I think maybe the point is you might go and see some venture capitalists and you might seem to have had a really nice meeting. But to say that is the start of the road is such a massive understatement. You know, you have to there's there's such a long journey to take them on. But also it's the same with, with high net worths and angel investors. You know, they all have lives, they all have different priorities, and sometimes, you know, they don't call you back because they've got something else going on. 
or the, yeah. one of their other investments needs working out. And it isn't that they don't like you. It isn't that they don't like the basic idea of investing in your business. But at the end of the day, you've got a problem because they're not going to do it in the timescale that you're expecting them to do it. Yeah. What, um, what would you advise someone you know, who's sitting there trying to raise money, just get get professionals. I mean, the other thing you seem to be advising was be honest about your business. Like you understand, get clear in your head what you're capable of and, and deliver, you know. And also how the investor is going to get their money back with a return. Because I think many, many businesses know they need to raise, yeah. but often don't really talk about the exit. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things I learned is, you know, firstly, when you talk to potential investments or something, do you understand their revenue model? Because a business with no revenue is not a business. So, so first thing is, you know, do you understand their revenue model? Next thing is, is do you understand how they can actually do what it is that they're actually selling? Because the one thing you can be fairly sure about is that even the most stupid business will spend any money you give them. So, <laughs> so you don't have to doubt, can they spend the money that I've given them? But you, do, you do need to sort of think, do I trust this team to execute the thing that they, they say they're going to do? Do they value the money, I guess? Yeah. yeah. But, the, but the third thing somebody mentioned to me over a real good lunch who does lots and lots of angel investment is, what's the plan for exit? Yeah, because I'm an investor. It, it, uh, I want my money back. Exactly. It's no good if the founder says, I love what I'm doing. I want to do this forever. Because how do you get your money back? And the point is, is if, if somebody now hasn't got any clues about who might want to buy their business, then it's difficult to believe they're going to grow their company in a way to make it attractive to the potential buyers. Because at the end of the day, you've got to have a business fit for sale for someone to buy you. And that means you've got to, you can't do that at the last minute. You've got to build it from the beginning to be one that's attractive for somebody to actually want to take out. Gideon, all really, really wise words. I, I really want you to come on a trip with me to San Francisco and see some of those businesses that... um. I take it you you only generally operate in the UK, but your comment about a business isn't a business unless it's got revenue. In San Francisco, I struggle with a lot of their tech scene and a lot of what's going on, and sometimes here where people you know have not sold anything and are spending like you've never seen. You can create value if you've created intellectual property that someone else can use. But that is the business case. That is, I'm, I'm inventing some unique inventions and then I will sell them to a big tech giant or a consumer electronics company to use my inventions. That's okay. But before you earn 10 million of someone's money, it's good to give some clues that people actually <laughs> want the thing that you're building. <laughs> I love your deadpan humor. <laughs> And one of the things I always say to people that you meet thinking about a business is, is do you know any customers for the thing you've not built yet? Because you can save yourself a lot of time and trouble um, if you can't find any customers for what you want, not wasting someone else's money building the thing no one wants. And now a quick word from our sponsor. Clark got its start back in 1935 and while the world has changed a bit it's 
more than just survived From complying with the FCA and all things financy They could also speak fluently in the language of legalese Aubrey Clark was born and raised right here in the UK And now for 20 years they've been helping others get set up and on their way Aubrey Clark's door's always open and happy to provide Straight talking financial and legal advice since 1935 Big shout out to Sean Veer Singh for a stellar jingle. You can find him at Sean Veer Singh Music on Instagram. And at this point, let me quickly remind you to give us a nice review, please, on Apple Podcast or follow us on Spotify so you'll never miss an episode. Now back to the chat. What do you think is most difficult about um, the transition then for a company from sort of startup to, to growing up? Well, I think the generally the most difficult bit of a company is working out what it's doing. Okay. I think once it's got a product to sell, yeah, I think it's harder than most people realize to go and find their fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth customer. But it's easier to find your fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth customer than your first or second customer. I think... It becomes easier to recruit people once it's clear what you do because individuals have got their own lives. Therefore, it's a less risky proposition if they understand what you do and they think they can, they can contribute. So I think the most difficult parts of a business are, you know, the first three years, getting it going, finding the person brave enough to be your first customer, do you think charging them enough. Do you, you're a non-executive, that's how I know you, or you're a non-executive director. Do you think having non-executive directors is important in the UK? Well, I think there are two types of non-exec directors. I think some people do it and focus on compliance, focus on governance. Sometimes it depends what background they've come from. But effectively, they're not adding a huge amount to the day-to-day operations of a company. Now, I think... You know, if you're a shareholder and a director of a company, you should help them. And I think, obviously, it'd be brilliant if you could say, here are six customers that want your product. I think that would be the dream non-exec for for many, many businesses. But sometimes you're complementing a skill set that the people that run the business don't have. And the business that you and I met, they were brilliant technical engineers. They built a product that no one else has built anything as clever as this. But they built it, you know, in a small German university town that's not near any of their customers. And amazingly, when I met them, they had two customers and were already profitable. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the things is, is, you know, after a few years, they were able to be four or five times bigger just simply from meeting more customers. So you do start to realize in a business that the bit that I could never do to invent a product that's never been done before, that's really difficult and people have to work really hard to do that. But actually, those people don't know any customers and the product doesn't sell itself. Yeah. You know, they've got to find routes to market and, and to work out the commercial proposition and how people want it. And they can do it by trying if it's a really good business. But normally it's a smart thing to find people that know some of your customers, that know um, what those are people are prepared to pay and, and will get frank feedback on what this other company needs to do to actually win the deal. What do you think is most misunderstood then about being an employer or being a boss? Have you, have you, have you been a boss out of interest? I've... I've certainly had to try and get teams to do what it is that we want them to do. 
And what do you think is most difficult about that? Well, I think one of the things that's difficult is, you know, to be a good boss, you have to look after all your people and they're all different. Yeah. And therefore, you've got to listen to them and put time into that. I think, you know, not everybody enjoys that. Yeah. Not everyone's a people person. Yeah, and I think, you know, but it is important that, you know, everybody on the team knows what they're there to do. Everybody on the team is wants to do what it is you've asked them to do. Yeah. I think it is quite difficult because if you stick a bunch of people in a room, some of them will inevitably dislike the others. Yeah. That will inevitably mean they spend some of their time in red mist, looking at the other person, wishing, you know, I wish I could stick pins in them. And and as a boss, you know, you've got to look out for that and you've got to manage it. I think, you know, the last company I ran that had, had big teams, you know, we sort of got to the point one day where we were like, we're not going to hire any more sensitive people. <laughs> and, and for the first few hires we did after that, we got one of my finance team who, you know, could be quite brutal and could be quite rude. And we're like, yeah, take them to the pub and be yourself. You know, just, 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 just tell them about the business, but don't hold back, be yourself. And we sort of did that to see, you know, were they offended by, you know, one of the members of a team that could be quite robust? Because we thought we really need more people in the office that, that don't, you know, burst out into tears the, the moment something goes wrong. So Gideon, what are you most excited about for your business or for the future? I am excited by launching a new business again. I think the journey when you have to get the proposition right, you have to get all your suppliers on board, you have to get ready to deliver what it is you want to sell. I think that's quite fun. And I'm just at the point where we're about to go and see potential first clients. Wow. And, you know, I'm quite excited about that because I think... A, it's really interesting whether we've got the proposition right, whether people go, why are you wasting my time? Mm -hmm. Or actually, that's brilliant. You know, how do I start? But secondly, I think it is interesting in the world we're in that we all accept that, you know, we want to discover products and services and places we could travel to that we didn't know about. So it is interesting how businesses do that in a world where we're all becoming cynical and we see far too much advertising and and so forth. So it is interesting to see, is there a way that we can do this that effectively helps the business reach the customers that want to hear from them, stops them wasting money on customers that don't really want to hear from them or don't really fit their profile, and equally customers are happy to see the advertisements because they're well-targeted. I love this. I'm all over it. I'm there. Sadly, I'm not a big corp to buy you, but... Very exciting. I look forward to asking you this in a year's time when you're like, fuck this business. (laughs) It's ruining my life. My wife's leaving me. I've run out of money and my partner's a bastard. Uh, What I'm I'm amused, though, is I couldn't start again. Like, having built here... the, the, the fact that you are excited to start over. Oh, entrepreneurs, you're crazy. You're crazy to go back into business. I mean, it's madness. If you could change something in this world, what would it be? Well, one thing on my mind, since the IPPC sort of said we were at Code Red, is um, climate change. Because I think it's quite easy with climate change to effectively think this is a giant problem 
and the government or government should do more. But I think, you know, somebody that I respect sort of wrote on social media a few weeks afterwards, you know, what are we going to tell our grandchildren what we did to play our part in addressing this? Mm. Because this is such a big problem that it will not simply be solved by a magic bullet or a bit of legislation or an invention. We all need to do something. We all need to consider what we do in our homes and what we do in our businesses to contribute to climate change. Now, many of these things, if it uses less energy right now, you know, what's happening to energy prices, you actually save money. So we should do that anyway, even if we don't care about climate change. Is that your tip? We should. Well, all- I guess it's true. It's accelerating. It must be accelerating some of it. I mean, I heard very strong arguments in the, the, that nuclear is, the mistake is that we've gone away from nuclear. A lot of people would argue that because it is such a, you know, incredible technology. I think nuclear is part of a package part of, of solutions. Solution. Yeah, yeah. But equally, you know, there was this fantastic chart that, that used to be shown of, of basically the cost per thousand of reducing a ton of carbon. And it ranked all the possible policy options from turning the lights off, turning the heating down to new types of aeroplanes and power stations, which tend to be quite expensive. And the first half of the chart were things that actually paid for themselves because, you know, effectively just reduced the heating. You know, lots and lots of energy efficiency things could happen at zero cost. So what's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? As a young man, I remember going to a pub, talking about, you know, different projects we could see around us. And, and someone said, you know, Gideon, the difference between the people leading on these projects is this person has grip. 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 And I think, you know, some people might call it focus. Other people might call it, you know, they're an Balls. effective manager. But effectively... I think in all settings, the mindset to have a grip on whatever it is you are solving and sometimes do things that you're going to break a few eggs, you're going to rustle a few feathers and so forth. I think that is the biggest difference between achieving what you set out to do and not. I have an analogy. It's like getting in the ditch and helping. I think you're, I I love the word grip. I call it grit or getting in the ditch of like, we've got to work this out and we've got to do it together. Well, I think I think that's one of the differentiators between people at the top table that run a business and, and you know, people who want to get to that level. They're trying hard to impress you to say they're at that level, but often they come to you with a problem that really they're hoping you solve for them. And that really is the difference is I may not have any expertise in something. I may not really have any special ideas that are over and above the ones that person could have done. But I know you don't move forward without solving the problem. Okay, um, top three reads, podcasts, music, record records. Okay, I really enjoy the Wired podcast. The Wired? I think that is Wired UK podcast. Oh, the magazine. Mm, I think that comes out every Friday, really accessible. Okay, good one to check out. Um, Benedict Evans occasionally does a podcast and I, I, his style is, is a matter of taste, but in general, he's a pretty astute observer on what's going on in the technology world. And your third? Yeah, last one. I really like Tortoise. I think the quality of um, the output that they've done. Now, this is the, the venture launch that does slow news. 
As in not fast news, slow news. Yeah. Proper journalism. Yeah, they'll, they'll, their daily email comes out in the middle of the day rather than at 9am because they've given themselves the morning to think about it and to write good journalism. Okay, so that brings us to our favourite part of the show, the business versus bullshit quickfire round. D, cue the music. This is where we're going to reel off key terms and all you have to do is tell us whether each term is business or bullshit. Okay? Gideon, are you ready? I'm ready. Diversity quotas. Normally done as bullshit, but objective, they should be done properly. Okay, good answer. Stand up meetings. Business, people are much more focused when you get them to stand up. Okay. Caffeine. Business. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. Not bothered. Don't, don't, don't give, do you drink coffee? I enjoy my coffee first thing in the morning. Yeah. Helps you, helps, helps everything get started. <laughs> All right, boys, let's not go down that road. Me- meeting agendas. Business. I think it's really important in general. People know what the purpose of a discussion is. Yeah. Otherwise, you can just talk for hours about absolutely nothing. Like it. Hour long meetings. It depends on topic, but my default is to set them on Google to be 25 or 50 minutes. Oh, really? 25 or 50? What, five-minute break, is it? Just a sort of... Okay. Do you and find, allow for overruns. But do you find... What I find is that's not what happens. People still run to the half hour. Do you know what I mean? You, you, you could set the meeting at 25 minutes, but it'll still go for an hour. Do you know what I mean? It's You've like, got to be prepared to tell people you've got another meeting. Office dogs. I think bullshit. Well done, Gideon. We are going to be friends for life. I, I work. I work often in a wee work where dogs are roaming around. Irritating. And, and um, it's really bad with computer cables. So, so I think honestly, they should have different floors for the people with dogs. I like your thinking. Carbon credits. Should be business, but I think tricky area to get right. Bullshit, he's calling it, yeah? Bullshit for now. Swearing in fucking meetings. Definitely fucking bullshit. Okay. Pub lunches. Uh, Business. Lots of good business gets done in a pub. B Corps. You aware what a B Corp is? Bullshit. (laughs) NDAs. Bullshit. Well done. <laughs> Unlimited holidays. Bullshit. <laughs> LinkedIn. Business. I think it's quite useful. Formal workloads. Bullshit. Excellent. That's the end of the quick far round. Okay, so this is where we give you 30 seconds to pitch your company, podcast, but whatever you like. I should pitch a business called Mammoth because I do think that they are solving a problem that almost everybody's going to have, which is how on earth do you learn anything from multiple data sources? So I think um, it's a nice, no-code, simple product that anyone can use. I'm obviously going to pitch to business I'm about to launch, and I think, give us a call, we will find a way to help you. What's the name of the business you're about to launch? A tribute 360. 
attribute 360. There we go. Brilliant. Okay, so Gideon, if our listeners want to find out more about you online, what's the best way for them to do that? How do they track you down? I have a website, gideonhoffman.co.uk. It's a single page. I think everyone should have a website like that. That will definitely be the best way of finding me. Hoffman, H-O-F-F-M-A-N. I love that word. It's a nice surname, Good names, good strong. It's because of the Knight Rider guy. What's he called? Hoff, the Hoff. David Hasselhoff. I know, it's a different name. So there you have it. That was this week's episode of Business Without Bullshit. Thank you to Gideon for joining us. Thank you to my dear sister and co-host, Juliet. And a big thank you to you, dear listener. We'll be back with another episode next week. Until next time, it's ciao. Ciao.